The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And they've been very clear to the Lebanese if you don't get Hezbollah under control and you choose to enter into this fight, we'll flatten Lebanon. And they're saying that to try and deter a potential conflict. But they're very clear on this. We are not attacking Lebanon, but if Lebanon, if Hezbollah attacks us from Lebanon, you're all on the hook. And uh, they're using that to try and up domestic pressure on Hezbollah not to do it. And uh, especially after what happened in 06, in the war in the north there, I, I think they're really trying to prevent that from exploding. And they're using everything, at the moment the skirmishes, but everyone's trying to tamp that down. You know, I think the Saudis are also trying to communicate to the Iranians on that, and everyone's trying to keep the North calm, uh, trying. I don't know if it will be successful, and I think it's something that also Israelis are extremely worried about, and Israeli decision makers, and the U.S. is also worried about. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 18th, 2023. The conflict in Gaza may be approaching a turning point. An increasingly frustrated Biden administration has reportedly told Israeli officials that the military campaign needs to wind up within weeks, while even some Israeli officials have suggested that Hamas may be on the verge of collapse. But as the physical and human devastation in Gaza continues to mount, the question of what comes after the conflict ends looms just over the horizon without anyone offering a clear answer. To talk through the state of the conflict and what might come next, I sat down with Joel Braunold, the managing director of the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace, someone who has followed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict closely for decades and has often played a key supporting role in related negotiations. We talked about the state of Israel's military campaign, how it is impacting Israeli and Palestinian politics, and the challenges of reaching a new status quo that stands any chance of meeting the demands of those parties who are most directly affected. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 18th. Joel Bronald on Gaza and what comes next. So, Joel, we are in a moment in regards to the conflict in Gaza that I think looks like a pivot point, at least by some measures. We've seen the northern campaign, the campaign in northern Gaza, seems to be more or less complete at this point. We see Israel moving south, targeting different targets in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. We are hearing reports that the Biden administration, specifically Secretary of State Blinken, has said that military operations need to be wound up by the end of this calendar year or thereabouts. There are is a sense that this conflict is maybe not complete. We've heard some mentions from Israeli officials suggesting that uh, Hamas and PIJ are kind of on their heels and about to collapse, although some people have expressed doubts about that. But needless to say, it does look like the trajectory of the conflict might be turning a little bit, and we're beginning to see perhaps some slowing down in the tempo of operations, or at least the the statements of expectations about where the conflict is going to go from here. Can you give us a snapshot of the conflict, the current state of things in terms of what Israel is doing, and the state of Gaza right now, just to start us out so we have a baseline understanding uh, about all the political discussions we're going to get into around those core questions moving forward? Sure, and Scott, it's a pleasure to be with you and to be on Lawfare. I think let's go back to to October seventh, and as large as the uh, as the security and intelligence failure was on October seventh, I'd argue that the policy failure of the past fifteen years was as large. And uh, after the Yom Kippur War in nineteen seventy three, in in Israel there was this concept of the failure of the conception that Israel couldn't have imagined. Uh, the 1973 war. And in a similar way, what happened on October 7th was the breaking of the conception of Hamas being a tolerable terrorist threat. And the, the success of the October 7th attack converted Hamas into an intolerable military threat 
uh, that exist on Israel's southern border, literally next to it. There's no buffer zone. And so uh, as Israel started its operation, it, it was not that clear in terms of what the goals were. Israeli decision makers, uh, the war cabinet uh, stated that the aim originally was to destroy Hamas. Um, how you destroy, you know, is it the military arm of Hamas? Is it the ideology? Is it all civil uh, members of Gaza's government, which is run by Hamas? All of these were very important questions. And it seemed that as the war continued, it was to ensure that Hamas could not threaten um, the Israeli communities of the South again. Uh, so we saw that first conversion. And of course, we had the issue of hostages. Hamas uh, kidnapped uh, 200, uh, over 200 people, civilians, military folks. And during the humanitarian pause, when we saw hostages released for Israeli detained Palestinian uh, women and children, we saw some hostage releases. And especially given their foreign nationalities, it was clear, and it has been clear, and Prime Minister Netanyahu has restated even as of today, that one of the expectations and aims of the war is to release uh, the captive Israelis as well. So if we look at the aims of the war, it's to in some way degrade Hamas's military capabilities to prevent something like October 7th happening again, as well as procure the release of the hostages that are there. And when we examine those aims, we see automatically one of the big challenges. Hamas didn't use specific high-tech technology to, to commit its atrocities on October 7th. The rockets that it's managed to fire into Israel, into the, into the center of Israel, and all the way up to the north of Haifa, are capabilities it's had for the past 12 years. Um, since 2012, they've managed to reach Tel Aviv with their rockets. And so you already see a problem for the Israeli decision makers that you have had 15 years of financially enabling Hamas to dig in into Gaza. Uh, there was no special military aspects that they have. So how do you unpick them from the civilian population and ensure that they don't get to build back better afterwards when they are a, also a political party? And how do you also secure the release of your hostages? And so when you look at all of that, you know, the Israelis started in northern Gaza and tried to evacuate all the civilian population to south of Wadi Gaza and have been operating in northern Gaza. There are still seemingly very strong pockets of resistance in the north uh, before they turn to the south, where they think that uh, the Hamas command and control in Gaza is situated. And it's difficult. What does a victory picture look like for Israel? Do they have the time to create that sort of victory picture? Um, we've seen many reports that Israel has opened up the level of targeting that it is operating in the Gaza Strip, that targets that were not targets in previous rounds are targets. There was a big report in the 972 magazine about how AI has helped identify targets. Early on in the war, there were different Israeli military and political officials saying that the point of this operation was damage rather than targets. So into all of this, it's been a difficult moment for the administration to try and figure out what does an end of this look like and how can we help generate what that end looks like. And Israel has had to try and maintain that this is not a war against the people of Gaza. It's a war against Hamas. But as the civilian death toll has increased, as the numbers, as are reported by the Palestinian health authorities that Israel quibbles with, but the UN and others, it seems that there has been a, a higher percentage of civilians killed than in previous rounds, pretty considerable. As eyewitness accounts of just the horrendous nature uh, and the humanitarian collapse that has happened in Gaza come public, it's becoming an intolerable situation. And Israel faces this time deadline, as you mentioned, that the administration wants this wrapped up as quickly as possible. And Israel's inability to articulate what a day after could look like that is even in the realms of acceptability to America, let alone the wider region, is creating an even greater time constraint on the operations. And the reason is this. Given the inability politically of this current government of Israel to enable the PA to come back into Gaza or, or to offer a, a framework that gets back towards a two-state solution or anything else, that gap of what is this for, what comes next, is like a hole in the bottom of their boat. And the support that they enjoyed at the beginning internationally for this operation is dissipating because no one knows what comes next. And into that vacuum, so many people's fears are filling it. Is Israel trying to push all the Palestinians into Egypt? 
and to try and ethnically cleanse northern Gaza, at least, or the whole of the Gaza Strip? Are they trying to create another Nakba, which is the concept of a disaster that the Palestinians experienced in 1948? We've heard people, even former heads of Shin Bet, uh, Avi Dichta, who's the agricultural minister in Israel, say that, you know, this will be another Nakba and other things, and with no pushback from the prime minister. We haven't heard the prime minister promise that those who have fled the Gaza Strip can return home afterwards. And so these fears are what are generating in the region a complete rejection of any Israeli uh, request to host Gaza war refugees because they believe they won't be able to return home. And this vacuum of what comes next is really creating a time pressure because America doesn't want to be supporting a political campaign for Prime Minister Netanyahu. They understand the military campaign of what needs to happen, but they understand this as a, within a context that once Hamas is removed, there will be a political process. And Israel hasn't pledged and doesn't seem to have the ability to agree to that. And that's a huge disagreement that is putting pressure on the time campaign. To your second point about what it's like in the Gaza Strip, from all eyewitness reports and uh, UN agencies and humanitarian groups, there is a higher rate of civilian deaths in this time period during the war in the Gaza Strip than in any other conflict in the 21st century. We're seeing a complete humanitarian collapse. The rains in the winter are creating flooding conditions. There's huge worries about disease and cholera, the lack of uh, basic necessities, and the way that Hamas has dug in into the civilian architecture and infrastructure of Gaza makes this an absolute nightmare. And Gaza's civilians are really facing the brunt of this. They're being asked to evacuate in the south, but as they're evacuating, there are still military uh, operations going on. The Americans, through Ambassador Satterfield, have tried to create a de-escalation mechanism, but it doesn't seem to be working, or if it is, it's only just now working. And everyone doesn't believe anyone. There's no seemingly single source of information that Gaza civilians can believe. And so they feel like if they flee, they could be killed. If they stay, they could be killed. And if they do flee, could they even return back to their homes afterwards? And meanwhile, there's a lack of food. There's a lack of water. There's basically a collapse of the entire healthcare system. People have basically created shanty towns and refugees alongside the rougher crossing next to Egypt which is exactly a place where Israel wants to be able to prosecute the war in the south. And how could they possibly do that now that the majority of Gaza's civilians from the north are now in the south? So these are all gigantic problems that Israeli military planners, that the U.S. senior officials, and of course, most importantly, Gaza civilians are now facing. And this is the difficulty of what's happening right now. That is an incredibly useful and sweeping, if somewhat bleak and depressing, scene setter for the scenario the world is wrestling with. Let's drill down on a few parts of it, though, before we shift our conversation to think about what might come next. The last few weeks, we've seen a number of signs, often through kind of unconfirmed reporting, unofficial statements from folks in the Biden administration, signaling a higher degree of frustration with the Israelis, uh, the most Recent one of these, I would say, is probably these reports about comments that President Biden made to Democratic donors earlier this week, suggesting that Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has to go or that otherwise uh, some sort of change is necessary in Israel. Not exactly clear whether that is relation to the military operations or afterwards, seems more like the sense afterwards, um, but nonetheless indicating a lot of frustration with him specifically and some elements of his government, including some of his far right cabinet members and members of his government. Tell us a little bit about what the U.S.-Israel relationship looks like now and the evolution it's gone on from the bear hug, as we've heard Biden administration folks describe it, the close embrace of Israel closely after October 7th, to the current moment where we're seeing these, seeing these signs of frustration poke through, even as U.S. security assistance is largely continuing. You know, President Biden, I think the first and foremost thing to say is that this very much is a President Biden policy. I think we've seen in his trip to Israel at the height of the war, his ability to emote and to feel the pain and suffering of uh, the Israeli population and their shock and horror after October 7th has been sort of the prime setting. And he has built significant political capital in Israel amongst Israelis as someone who is seen especially to care for the hostage families, uh, even more so than their own government. And that was from the beginning of the war and continues even up to yesterday, where it seems like the hostage families have spent far more time with President Biden than with their own prime minister. I think that's an important scene setter. 
the Americans have had at various different points different pieces of the puzzle as the war has continued. At the beginning, it was very much a supporting aspiration that Israel needs the time and space to be able to prosecute this war and defeat Hamas militarily and ensure this doesn't happen again. But there was always an expectation from the Biden administration that afterwards we had to return to a political process. You know, if we were going to ensure that Hamas didn't destroy the potential of a Saudi-Israel normalization, then the need for there to be a Palestinian aspect of that normalization has only increased. And we saw that in Jake Sullivan's rewriting of his piece in Foreign Affairs, where in his original piece that he had written before October 7th, Israel-Palestine really didn't have much to say. It was maybe three sentences. And then post-October 7th, he sort of wrote an additional 5,000 words where he centered the Palestinians on the Saudi-Israel normalization. And that's to say that if if we're going to ensure that Hamas doesn't destroy that, then there's going to need to be some level of, of political give to the Palestinians if that's going to move forward. At the same time, not just, I'd say, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we'll return to him in a second, but the Israeli population is suffering a whiplash that they don't want to see October 7th be rewarded by conflict resolution. You know, if at the end of October 7th, you then reward the Palestinians with a state, what's the message it sends? And I'd argue that the failure of the past 15 years has been rewarding Hamas while punishing the moderate, you know, while punishing the PA in in the West Bank. And that was indicating, you know, to the Palestinians what worked and what didn't work when it came to the Israelis. You know, it's been said very prominently in Israel that the prime minister and others in his government, including the finance minister, Mr. Smotrich, saw Hamas as the more acceptable face of the Palestinians because they were terrorists internationally rather than the PA who would seen as a true diplomatic threat to Israel versus Hamas who were not having any stage on the diplomatic sense. So the Biden administration wanted to make sure that there is a day after in this. And I think they became it became clear as the war continued that there might not, the Israelis don't agree on anything that the Americans won in a day after. So after the bear hug, Secretary of State Blinken did a huge regional tour. I think he hit nine or 10 countries going around to sort of take the temperature of the region, see what people thought about opening safe zones in Egypt and heard from everyone. Absolutely not. We will not push Palestinians off their land. That's what this government in Israel wants. And we will not enable another Nakba. And Secretary of State Blinken at the G7 back in November, I think it was November 8th, said, you know, the US believes that there should be no forcible displacements of Palestinians from Gaza, not now and not after the war. There should be no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism or other violent attacks. There should be no reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends. There should be no attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza. Okay, so these are the principles. Now, Israel hasn't ruled out a buffer zone in Gaza, though the US has, it seems. And though no one in the Israeli official government is saying that they want to build settlements in Gaza, there have been some cabinet ministers from not the Likud and some in the Likud saying maybe we should, but so far we haven't heard that from the prime minister. So the Americans started dealing with, okay, let's first focus on hostages and then let's focus on humanitarian access. I think it's notable that the only political person who was appointed post the war um, outside of a new ambassador, and I'll return to that as well, uh, was Ambassador Satterfield to lead the humanitarian approach as the presidential envoy on humanitarian approaches. So the focus clearly was on ensuring the humanitarian access. And day in, day out, uh, the ambassador and his team have been really working on that and ensuring that there could be as much humanitarian access. There's been a push to open Israeli crossing points, Karim Shalom and Erez, to get more stuff through. And that's an ongoing backwards and forwards. But outside of that, it it was clear that someone needs to work on day after. And it seems that the president has tasked the vice president and her team, Phil Gordon and Ilan Goldenberg, to lead this day after planning. And they were just uh, in Israel to try and start those conversations. But we start from a position of gigantic chasmous gaps where they want the Americans want some level of revitalized PA, maybe with some Arab sponsorship or anchorage to help rebuild, rehabilitate. DDR, you know, disarm, demobilize, um, reintegrate Gaza. And the Israelis at the moment, at least Netanyahu, is very clear that he wants no PA. It seems he left open some opportunity for a rehabilitated and reformed PA. 
But when you he's in campaign mode, and as you mentioned, President Biden took pot shots about the need to to change the Israeli coalition at his fundraiser. That was in response to the prime minister doing a public video saying, we won't repeat the mistakes of Oslo. I won't allow the PA to come in. I will stand strong. And it's clear that that's going to be his calling card in a potential election, that I will stand up against the Americans. The fact he's doing this while America is basically the main supporter and rearmor of Israel in this, what is becoming an existential conflict that Israel's having with Hamas and potentially in the north is particularly crazy if you actually think about it. And um, this is where the areas of disagreement, just to return to Ambassador Liu. So the US lost its ambassador, Tom Nides, uh, a few months before the conflict, he, he left and we had a DCM and then the new ambassador, Ambassador Liu, was nominated and confirmed and came in during this conflict. And I think that creates a challenging environment, especially when the Americans and the Israelis are having very strong disagreements on very big political things. You'd like there to be places where people have had long-standing relationships with each other who are in post, where you can try and sort of have spaces that you can have these disagreements and not make everything in every bilateral meeting so confrontational. But, you know, Ambassador Liu's just got there. And I think that lacking those individual relationships that are built up over a couple of years of being there is not easy. And I think that that's also one thing we're seeing is we need to make sure that all of these conversations, there's a constant moving of Lloyd Austin and Jake Sullivan and the vice president's team, and everyone's coming in and out of Israel every week to continue these conversations. And it's uh, we need to try and make sure that these conversations move forward in a way that the Israelis find a place that they can agree and the Americans can find a place that they can agree and that they can bring the rest of the region. And I'll finish off by saying, the UAE said this week, and I think the Saudis as well, they will not contribute a penny to the rehabilitation and reconstruction of Gaza unless there is a US put forward plan about how this fits into a process to get back to a political horizon of two states. And this is the, the challenge that the US faces. The current government of Israel, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, does not want to be able to, to offer that. And the Israeli population is probably not there. But no one else in the region, and I'd argue even in President Biden's Democratic Party, wants to get to a position where there is no day after and there is no political horizon. And so this is a huge area of disagreement that needs to be overcome. You mentioned already some tension between the United States and Israel over the conduct of this war. And that's another very specific, more technical area. We've seen a bit of a shift in U.S. positions, a subtle one at least, particularly over the last few weeks. You know, earlier in the conflict, we had U.S. officials, senior U.S. officials, expressly saying we're not going to second guess the Israelis on a lot of these military actions. But just in the last few weeks, we've seen you know, reports from U.S. intel assessments noting that non-smart munitions were more than half of what was being used in Gaza. Which you don't have to read between the lines to to get a sense that maybe that's a suggestion they weren't as accurate as as some might believe. Also, concerns about. You know, the recent Israeli move of posting photos showing Palestinian detainees stripped to their underwear, lined up in public, um, which a State Department official spokesperson described as, as disturbing. Are we beginning to see a more more open daylight between the Israelis and the Americans on the actual conduct of this military campaign? And how does that fit in the, this picture? I mean, is that going to get to a point where that's a source of pressure on the Israelis to wrap up the campaign or to limit the scope of it? And how quickly do you see that that gap widening? So I, I go back to before the ground invasion, you know, alongside the two aircraft carriers that President Biden moved in to basically deter Iran and Hezbollah from getting involved. He sent, I think, a, a major general from the Marine Corps, if I remember, or maybe the army, to try and give advice after, you know, the counter-ISIL coalition of what they did in Mosul. And just as the Grand Invasion launched, I remember he left and there was a quote saying, you know, this is all the Israelis doing whatever they need to do. And I think that the Israelis feel, you know, that they can prosecute the war how they see fit and that they understand Gaza better than the Americans. As I mentioned earlier, I think we have seen an increase in who, where Israel is, is operating in terms of the expanse of the military target, what counts as a military target, and the desire to disable Hamas as a governing entity. You know, we've seen the parliament building blown up. We've seen uh, other parts of the civilian infrastructure destroyed. Um, and I think that's part of the campaign, and that's very difficult. And what does that mean moving forward? I'm not a military planner. I'm not an expert. 
in international humanitarian law. Um, but those who are have pointed out the differences between this campaign and previous campaigns. And I think there has been a death of, of information about uh, who to believe and what to believe. And the fact that Gaza is closed off and that there aren't international journalists in there. All of this adds to not just a fog of war, but a purposeful closing of the space and what happens and what does a picture mean and who's in the picture and the the, the arguments backwards and forwards. And we saw that with um, the Anglican hospital in Gaza that was bombed just before President Biden's visit and was a, a dropped Hamas rocket, which now even Human Rights Watch seems to say it was, at least in their initial reports versus an Israeli military strike. But ultimately, I think it's important to understand that there are two completely different filter bubbles happening. In Israel and in parts of the US, the focus still is on October 7th and the atrocities of that day from, it seems, the use of rape as a mass sexual tool of of terror to just the, the atrocities that were committed by Hamas and the murder of 1,200 people versus what the rest of the region is seeing. Uh, of the ongoing military campaign in in Gaza that's described across the region and in many in other places as a genocide. And it's ongoing and that's what's filling people's TV screens. And in the latest Palestinian polls, the vast majority of Palestinians don't believe that Hamas committed atrocities. And we've got these complete different bubbles happening. And that's really a challenge because going back to the Mosul, if we're going to rehabilitate Gaza afterwards, there is a hearts and minds question that just isn't part of the Israeli military strategy. There is no desire to separate, at least right now, sort of how Palestinians perceive the Israeli military campaign versus how they perceive Hamas, except to say all of the tragedy that's befalling you is Hamas's fault, so blame them. Um, And most Palestinians are not blaming Hamas, they're blaming Israel because Israel's prosecuting the military campaign. And that's really difficult and problematic and challenging. I'll just say on the US side, we have seen reports both yesterday and before, of a slowing down of munitions, especially to Israel's National Security Ministry that is run by Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the National Security Minister, who is part of the far-right Jewish Power Party. There was a real discomfort amongst the Americans about how weapons were being distributed to civilian security forces in political ways, and there was it empowering radical elements and they've delayed or suspended shipments. I don't think we've seen that with the IDF or at least anything publicly, but there has been this real discomfort there as well. So I think we have seen that and um, we'll see what happens as things move forward if there is a disagreement about how Israel continues to prosecute the war, about what the US thinks about sending additional munitions. At the moment, I don't think we've seen that, but you know, will that be on the table is a, is a question to be moved forward as well as the placement of US military assets in the region. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, 
Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So, so far, we've talked about Israel as if it is a unitary actor, or we've mentioned Prime Minister Netanyahu. But of course, neither of those are actually the people in control of some of the most essential policy decisions Israel is undertaking. Right now, we have this particular conflict is being pursued by a war cabinet consisting of Netanyahu and been against, uh, you know, an opposition figure, a prominent military figure, and Yov Gallant, the minister of defense that was briefly fired or almost fired by Netanyahu during protests over constitutional reforms in Israel earlier this year, late last year, ultimately was not fired, kept around, and now has a fairly prominent role. And of course, that is a broader cross-section that includes some figures outside of Netanyahu's coalition, but it doesn't include people like Yair Lapid, who were, played a more prominent role in the opposition uh, and, and held more prominent positions in the government when Netanyahu's coalition was out of power. Who is actually the decider around a lot of these core policy decisions regarding the conflict, regarding other issues of concern here? What is Netanyahu's role? How much control does he have? And, and is the focus on him personally actually the right focus? Is he the one in the driver's seat or not? Uh, I'd say he is in the driver's seat. You know, so uh, early on in the war, there was a desire to have a unity government. Uh, Benny Gantz, as you mentioned, and his National Unity Party joined the government. So the government created a war cabinet. So there were four members of the war cabinet, Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, both are former chiefs of staff, and then the prime minister and the defense minister. And then there are two observers to cabinet, the war cabinet. And then you've still got the security cabinet, which includes members of Benny Gantz's party. And then you've got the wider cabinet. And at different points in the war, we've seen that the security cabinet, for example, put the hostage vote 
not just to the war cabinet, but to the security cabinet and then to the wider cabinet. So at any opportunity where there could be a politically contentious decision, the prime minister has tried to create responsibility across his coalition so that he can't be attacked from his right. He convinced even Smotrich to agree to the hostage release, but didn't convince Bengvir and his party. And now, for example, he he moved the decision about fueling Gaza from the security cabinet to the war cabinet. So th- there's a constant moving backwards and forwards of who's in charge of what. And it's unclear, I think, to many people about who ultimately can decide how the war ends. Is it the war cabinet? Is it the security cabinet? Is it the full cabinet? Is it the coalition in the Knesset? Like, it's an open question. And I think that's also something that is difficult for outside observers to understand. I'll say in polling, you know, right now, the biggest political winner in the Israeli polls of the war is Benny Gantz, who is being rewarded with gigantic poll numbers. The Likud is collapsing. Prime Minister Netanyahu's polling numbers are abysmal. The vast majority of the population thinks he should resign. He's got a 27% approval rating. And Benny Gantz is the prime beneficiary of that, where people see him as prime ministerial and his party's polling above 40 seats, which is the most that I think we've seen since the 90s of any particular party. I don't know. I have to go back and look at Sharon when he did um, Kadima. But um, he's really seen as the political victor. Um, Lapid is staying pat. I think that he's not receiving support having not joined the cabinet, but he, he didn't join because he didn't believe that the a unity government would have true say uh, because the radicals in the government, the far right partners of Bengvir and Smotrich were staying and he felt that his voice would be, be diluted. And if it would be diluted, what would be the point in throwing his lot in? And I think we'll see as, as things move forward. We've just had the budget passed today, which included coalition money for settlements and settlement development, which the opposition and Benny Gantz are furious about. But it's still passing. And there was also money in there for the ultra-Orthodox that Netanyahu is doing to try and prevent his coalition from collapsing once the war ends to show that he was still taking care of his coalition partners even during the war, so they should back him. Because he knows that the sooner there is an election, the soon, the more likely it is that he would lose. But if it's given time, maybe he can survive. And it's unclear. But there is a general feeling in the population when we look at polling of a real feeling that the prime minister is still playing politics as of today, even during the war. And you can see that in the statements and other things that are going on. So I do still think that the prime minister is critical. Of course, Betty Gantz is very important. And I think that there probably are some levels of disagreement around the day after. But I don't think they're as stark as people think. As I said earlier, it's a very big transition shift from the failure of conflict management, which was the failure of these past 50 year, 15 years, to go straight to conflict resolution to a final status agreement. And that's not what the Americans are pushing, but to try and rehabilitate or resuscitate the PA, even within an Arab coalition to go into Gaza, is, is that's not an easy political lift in Israel. Doesn't mean it doesn't need to happen and doesn't mean it's probably the most likely policy outcome. But the Israeli population isn't there. And how to get them there is a real difficult question, especially when the prime minister of Israel today is dead set against that. And this is the 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 political difficulties that I think people are going up against and how can you use Israel's new regional allies and the Abraham Accords and other allies, a potential Saudi deal, what the Egyptians and Jordanians think, what America thinks, what Europe thinks, all of these questions are important to try and see if you can create a Rubik's Cube to unlock it. But that that's the, that's the challenge. And so I don't think that Prime Minister Netanyahu isn't in charge. He's very much in charge. Um, but you know, if he's prosecuting this war at the same time as trying to save his political future, it creates complicated situations for the administration. I think that's what we heard in President Biden's remarks at the donor uh, conversation he had yesterday. So let's, let's take one step back a little bit further away from Gaza and bring in some of the other elements of the strategic picture here for Israel, and not just strategic from a national security perspective, well, certainly that, but also from a domestic politics perspective. We, of course, have seen the threat of expanded conflict really in a variety of areas around the region, most pertinent to Israel, however, in northern Israel, across the board with Lebanon, we've seen exchange of hostilities there, threats from Hezbollah, who you know, by most accounts has a, a much more significant military capability, could wreak serious damage against northern Israel if it 
chose to go all out in an effort to do so. Uh, we've seen internally displaced people within Israel because of the threat of that sort of conflict. And then we also have tensions in the West Bank, increased incidents of violence between Palestinians who live there, settlers who live there, a lot of allegations that the government, the Netanyahu-led government, particularly members of his cabinet, have been facilitating some of those conflicts, supporting them. That's a big factor of this reason why the United States is withholding, or at least not expediting the transfer of various assault rifles to that ministry because of concerns around this. How do these two conflicts fit into this picture? Are they pressures towards winding down this conflict, towards expanding it? Are they things that are we're seeing being used opportunistically by different actors in the domestic political picture? You know, where do they fit into the strategic conversation about Gaza, and how do they gravitate for or against a particular resolution? So let, let's start with the North. I think that the thing that the Israelis and the Americans were extremely worried about at the beginning was would Hezbollah get involved in the North. And I think that the moving of the aircraft carriers and the very clear don't message from President Biden was an indication, not just to Hezbollah, but its patron in Iran, um, to say, if you get involved and take advantage, that you know America might even join in in deterring Hezbollah and potentially even Iran itself. And so far that deterrence has held, though the Northern border has heated up and there's daily um, skirmishes going on. The Americans do not want the Israelis to start another front in the north. But, you know, Israel has evacuated its largest town in the north, Kiryat Shmona, and other communities in the north. And, you know, once they're done in Gaza, they they can't live in a situation where people can't return home in the north. And so whether it's a diplomatic solution, return, you know, pushing Hezbollah back through diplomatic means to further away from the border and re- making sure that there's a true buffer zone, um, or it has to be military, Israel's going to say, you need to figure out how we can return our communities to the north, or we're going to have to take it into our own hands. The Americans are extremely keen for there not to be a northern front open. I don't think the Israelis are looking for a fight, but they're also not shirking away. And they've been very clear to the Lebanese, if you don't get Hezbollah under control, and you choose to enter into this fight, we'll flatten Lebanon. And they're saying that to try and deter a potential conflict, but they're very clear on this. We are not attacking Lebanon, but if Lebanon, if Hezbollah attacks us from Lebanon, you're all on the hook. And uh, they're using that to try and up domestic pressure on Hezbollah not to do it. And uh, especially after what happened in 06, in the war in the north there, I, I think they're really trying to prevent that from exploding. And they're using everything at the moment, the skirmishes, but everyone's trying to tamp that down. You know, I think the Saudis are also trying to communicate to the Iranians on that. And everyone's trying to keep the north calm. Uh, trying. I don't know if it will be successful. And I think it's something that also Israelis are extremely worried about and Israeli decision makers. And the US is also worried about. And it's also a conversation about how deterrence is restored and what does that look like. When it comes to the West Bank, you know, the West Bank has been incredibly violent since October 7th and even before that. We were already on record before October 7th for the, the most amount of Palestinian deaths in the West Bank in years. You know, people have taken advantage of what's happened on October 7th and the focus on Gaza. Actually, let's take a step back. One of the big questions in Israel was why weren't there battalions next to Gaza when October 7th happened? And one of the answers were there were so many battalions in the north, in Samaria, in the north part of the West Bank, in the village of Hawara, which has been an ongoing flashpoint, because the far right in Israel wanted to to have a, you know, have a Sukkot celebration in Hawara in order to demonstrate to the Palestinians who were in charge because there had been um, shooting attacks from Hawara against Israelis driving around there and there's been a constant backwards and forwards there. And that there were troops defending pretty far-right settler members there doing that and that's where some of the troops were uh, and that they were defending those communities rather than being on the side of Gaza. And so you've already had this exacerbated tension. And when all the troops then moved to Gaza, those that were left to sort of defend the West Bank um, we're also dealing with increased, a radical increasing of settler attacks and reprisals uh, against Palestinians and backwards and forwards. And it's something that the U.S. has has indicated is absolutely unacceptable. The president has now banned U.S. visas to settlers who are attacking Palestinians in the West Bank, which is the first punitive step I think the U.S. has taken in years. As I mentioned, they're trying to restrict weapons to the National Security Ministry because they're worried about what could happen there. 
And this is also all the way along what has been a loosening, politically pushed of loosening of open fire procedures by Israeli security forces against Palestinians. And, And we saw a tragic result of that, not just against Palestinians, but there was an Israeli civilian who tried to stop a terrorist attack in Jerusalem two weeks ago on Friday, Yuval Kasselman, who was shot after surrendering pulling up his shirt, putting his arms up, declaring in Hebrew that he's an Israeli. And a reserve soldier who happened to be a member of the settler right shot him in cold blood and killed him. And, you know, the first response of the prime minister was, well, that's life, which went down like a ton of bricks, as you could imagine. But the this open fire procedure um, has really led to far more Palestinians dying. And that's been a real challenge ongoing. And so the West Bank is imploding. And at the same time, Israeli military operations are happening in Palestinian population centers where the PA can no longer operate in in Jenin and Nablus and in the refugee camps there against Hamas assets and others. And they're also rounding up anyone they think could potentially create uh, additional tensions. And they're also looking at people's social media mentions. They've put hundreds, if not thousands of people into administrative detention. There are military operations ongoing. There are ongoing attacks from settlers around the olive harvest. There are desire to try and prevent Palestinians from even harvesting their olives because it's too close to settlements. And what does that mean? And the entire backdrop of this, Scott, is that a third of the Palestinian GDP in the West Bank is generated from Palestinian laborers coming into Israel. And that stopped since October 7th. There hasn't been any. So you've got a massive economic crisis happening in the West Bank as well, where the economy is collapsing, not just because you don't have laborers coming in, but there's no tourism. There's no Arab citizens of Israel traveling over to the West Bank and spending their money there. So you're seeing a complete economic collapse of the Palestinian economy while you've got an increase of, of true kinetic friction. And, you know, intercommunal violence is probably not the right word, but, you know, settler Palestinian violence going up. And this is all happening and the West Bank's exploding. Jerusalem, thankfully, has managed to stay pretty calm, though for some reason that I don't think anyone can work out, the Jerusalem municipality is taking these opportunities to do house demolitions, which is just exacerbating the tension. Things have been calm on Temple Mount, which is the result of many dedicated behind the scenes professionals and religious leaders that's been really welcomed. But one place where I can say there is some good news is unlike May 2021, we haven't seen intercommunal violence in Israel. So Arab citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel are not going crazy against each other. Uh, Part of that is that is because on October 7th, Hamas killed many members of the Bedouin community and Arab community. Israel's Arab leadership, really led by Mansour Abbas, who's the head of the Islamist party in Israel, and Ayman Oda, who's part of the head of the secular list in Israel, Arab list, have really said that they will not participate in Hamas's calls for violence. And that's been responded in kind. President Herzog has been really pushing out a message of we can't allow this to divide us, and many different civil society groups and others have held that space open. And so that's been an area of positivity. But the West Bank is, is, is not just boiling, it's exploding. And should that topple over, then the concept of having a rehabilitated PA in Gaza, you need to restart with a rehabilitated PA in the West Bank that can control its territory there. And so these are all different pressure points. And I think that the Americans and the wider region is deeply frustrated at calls for the continued undermining of the PA in the West Bank or the expansion of settlements or a budget that improves settlements, not security, but but settlements and its development right now and it just feels all why are you doing this while you're fighting a war in gaza and a potential war in the north and you want to create another front for yourselves so there's a deep level of frustration and there's a deep level of worry because should the west bank truly kick off then what happens and so this is all underpinning and undercurrent of what's going on at the moment and this feeling that is the war in gaza something that could truly be existential and what would that look like and what would that mean in terms of israeli military planning moving forward well that leads Directly into what I think is the next essential question here, which is the state of the Palestinian Authority uh, and the broader Palestinian governance structure, including the PLO. Uh, you know, we know there haven't seen PA elections in over a decade. We it's being led by you know uh, an elderly Mahmoud Abbas, and has been struck by allegations of corruption uh, and among other sorts of failings for many many years by Israelis, by Americans, by many Palestinians. What? impact is this conflict having on the Palestinian Authority as an institution? And 
what does that do to the idea that they're going to play a role in any sort of scenario after the conflict ends? Uh, how feasible is that and what needs to change to put them in a position to be able to actually do something like that? I mean, the PA definitely wasn't popular before October 7th. Uh, I'd argue when you look at the Shakaki polls that came out yesterday, I think most Palestinians see them as irrelevant. They're not, they're not a relevant actor uh, to the eyes of most Palestinians uh, at this point. You know, elections were cancelled. They'll claim it's because the Israelis didn't allow them to have the elections in East Jerusalem. Others will say the Americans pushed against. Others will say, you know, you don't want Hamas to win. Ultimately, there's a real feeling that, you know, it's really all about succession planning amongst President Abbas uh, and who in Fatah could potentially take over. There's been questions about a technocratic government as a bridge. Uh, could you have a unity government? But what does that mean if Israel's saying that Hamas cannot take part in any political process moving forward? These are all open, big, problematic questions. I'd say that when you look at uh, the region and sort of the Sunni Arab coalition, there's no desire to try and build something new. I think there's a desire to rehabilitate the PA, reform it, both in terms of around corruption, prisoner payment issues, education structure, you know, get some professional leadership in there and use them as the legitimate entity to try and rehabilitate Gaza. Maybe at the beginning you have some sort of Arab sponsorship with the PA involved. Maybe you go to a technocratic government. Now, these are all imperfect solutions, but we're dealing with an imperfect situation. And so any any situation that would see the PA rehabilitate would require reforms, probably a new, a new government, um, probably a pledge for elections, uh, a reforming definitely of the prisoner payment system to deal with the Taylor Force Act and other issues and educational reform. And all these other sort of different particular questions. But I don't think there's a desire to create something completely new, because I think from examples of experiences in Iraq and other things, you know, even if it's a scleric entity, better the devil you know than trying to create something new. And at least, you know, it has bank accounts and structures and laws and legal aspects that you don't have to just create something completely new. Um, so there is this desire to sort of try and find a way to rehabilitate and resuscitate. it. But as I, I think we've spoken about earlier, the Israelis aren't on the same page with the Americans or the wider region. And that's a real area of department and, and dislocation. And, and Scott, just also to, to US laws, you know, the US legally can't financially support the PA. Even once, if it did fix its prisoner payment system, they would still be prevented in financially directly giving money to the PA unless they abandon any attempt at the International Criminal Court and stop joining UN agencies. And those are two very big asks of the PA just for US assistance. So the US is also in a very difficult legal situation of its own. And until the PA reforms its prisoner payment system in line with Taylor Force, the US can't even give funds that directly benefit the PA. So the US's ability to affect the situation and be a financial, sorry, financial support to the Palestinian Authority currently is legally prohibited by its own laws. So the role of the US in this is less funding what the PA looks like, but probably trying to convince the Israelis to allow something to happen, and then having the wider region come in on that rehabilitation and resuscitation, especially if the PA is going to be in charge of, of rebuilding Gaza. And that means that what the region is saying in terms of its necessity of having some level of political horizon around two states becomes even more important. Because unless Israel's paying for this themselves, the US can't pay for it, and the region won't pay for it without there being a political horizon. And that all goes into what comes on the day after planning. And that brings us to exactly you know the next issue i want to touch on which is which is the role of these other regional actors because you've described so aptly the stalemate we're at in you know the biden administration i think frankly the only ones really at this point that's clearly laid down some markers about what an after conflict scenario should look like they say we do need to have at least some process leading to a two state solution we do need to have a palestinian led probably pa led authority and control of both gaza and the west bank you know, kind of a, a, a restoration to a status quo that existed 15, 20 years ago, something like that, plus Hamas taken out of the Gaza Strip, or at least, uh, you know, not able to use it as a platform for terrorist attacks. You mentioned already that Arab states in the region, the most likely funders of this, aren't on board unless they see a clear process to lead to that outcome. 
what does that mean? What does that begin to look like? You know, and what is the process that we have to get there? If this conflict is winding down or does wind down within the next few weeks, as the Biden administration has signaled it should, I think there's reason to think that might not happen. But if that does begin to happen, what is the next step? What is the next process and who's involved in it to get to some sort of yes? And and what is the order of operations? What needs to happen first? particularly in terms of rebuilding Gaza or providing humanitarian relief there, if any anything else more productive is going to follow? So I, I like to think of this as concentric circles. So when you look at the two uh, nations closest to, to Gaza and the West Bank, those what I'd say is the proximity circle, you've got Jordan and Egypt. Jordan and Egypt have proximal power. You know, Jordan is seen as a traditional patron of at least what happens in the West Bank and, of course, Jerusalem. Egypt, of course, in Gaza because of just the proximity and sharing a border. Neither of them are sort of donor nations, but you can't really move forward in Gaza without the Egyptians. You just can't. And so that may, that gives them a significant level of influence and power. And I'd argue in the West Bank, you can't really ignore the Jordanians. But neither of them have like financial wherewithal. So while they're extremely important and both are key US allies, you know, they need to be brought along the process and have been two of the loudest voices at calling for immediacy of a ceasefire. We've seen them publicly sort of humiliate, I would argue, Secretary of State Blinken on stage, you know, directly contradicting him, pushing against him in pretty extreme ways. Um, and we've seen them take a very active ongoing role. The next level, is, uh, I'd say, is when you go further into the Gulf, you've got sort of the new Israeli allies, funding nations of the UAE, sort of Bahrain. Morocco sort of plays a different role. It's not so much in the region, but is an important cultural part of the normalization agreements that follow the Abraham Accords. And then you've got the big prize of Saudi Arabia, which Prime Minister Netanyahu still wants to make sure normalization's on. President Biden has said he still wants to make sure normalization's on, and they offer this political prize at the end of the road if Israel does the right thing. And so I think that the Saudis, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Jordan, Egypt, they're they're probably all going to act in symphony, trying to work out the funders and the proximity partners in terms of what does that look like. The other actor in this, I'd argue, there's two of them, well, there's three, is sort of Iran, Qatar, and Turkey as sort of the Islamist voices. And as much as Israel wants to defeat Hamas, there's still going to be an Islamist part of the Palestinian polity who are Islamically inspired. And what do you do with that? Who are their patrons? And Israel needs to pick, in my view, between these three actors. Do you want it the Iranians? Do you want it the Qataris? Or do you want it the Turks? And I know that Israel would prefer none of the above, but in my view, they have to pick. Like, the Iranians are a definite no. I think the Israelis have made clear at every human opportunity they don't want the Qataris playing this role. I think they feel very frustrated that Qatar is fettered in this role when it comes to hostages, while they still have Al Jazeera Arabic sort of pushing out what they feel is very inciting language and they're hosting Hamas, and they feel that that's not an option. And then you've got Turkey, where before October 7th, President Erdogan was leading a reconciling process with Israel. He met with the prime minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu, on the sides of the UN. There was this desire to take advantage of this new, you know, trans-India to the Eastern Med pipeline that would go through Turkey. There was a lot of potentiality there. And then after October 7th, after 15 days of silence, President Erdogan started very aggressively going after personally Prime Minister Netanyahu, calling him a war criminal, trying to push him to the ICC, but maintaining their diplomatic relationships with Israel at the same time. And so that's the ideological um, circle. And who do you want to be an ideological patron? And when in that same Shakaki poll, it seems that Turkey polls the highest of, of all of those actors amongst Palestinians as people that they like. And so that's also an important piece of this. So the the Rubik's Cube is how do you keep the promise of normalization with the Saudis to push the Israelis into a place where right now they don't want to go? Utilize that promise to try and get a political process back on that rehabilitates the Palestinian Authority, create some sort of authority in Gaza to rebuild it, try and create a DDR process that rehabilitates the political actors in Gaza into some level of political governance authority, and put that together into some sort of process that can eventually lead to some conflict transformation that can eventually create a political horizon. If that sounds incredibly complicated, it is. 
And it's really hard. And without being too critical of the Biden administration, you know, they came in and it was COVID and it was China and it was climate change. I think, you know, Jake Sullivan's, you know, original foreign affairs article was like, you know, we were doing a good job in Israel, Palestine, and it wasn't that important. And now after October 7th, it's now dominating their policy. And and how you actually rebuild a policy and rebuild a significant aspect of that a year before the election. But if you don't, it can upset not just stuff internationally, but domestically is a real big challenge. And how we try and get that policy agenda forward, because the Israelis are not looking to the Europeans. They need the Americans and especially on the Saudi file. And how do you do that effectively is is a real difficult, complex really gnarly problem, I think, as I learned in grad school, when you talk about difficult foreign policy problems. And that that's the order of the day. And it, it's going to require everything that everyone's got and a regional picture, as well as probably a lot of luck and some goodwill in order to try and get it into that direction. So given the incredible sweeping picture you've given us of all these different moving parts and the huge daunting challenge, as you've just laid out for us, what are the key pieces of advice you would give to U.S. policymakers or foreign policymakers looking at this picture? You know, what are the next steps that need to happen in the next four to six weeks, or perhaps a little bit longer, to set us at least on a trajectory where we can might actually be able to get to some of these more positive outcomes? Obviously, a lot more has to come to get there, but but what are the most immediate steps that need to happen to begin to at least turn the ship in that direction? You know, I. I- it's a complicated prescription. I think, firstly, you know, a push to try and open Israeli ports of access to Gaza, Karim Shalom, Erez is really essential. Uh, and that should be a, a clear and, and immediate target to try and open those up. When it comes to day after planning, you need to be flexible as a recognition that Israel's not going to elections tomorrow. And even if they're going, even if they're announced in seven weeks, it'll still take another three months. So you need to build a plan for this current government of Israel about what you want to try and achieve, as well as not just be restricted by their own political constraints and try and see if there might be a stage one or stage two that can happen before you get to a stage three and stage four and and try and understand what does that look like and how you try and sell that regionally and move forward. I think there's a lot of work that needs to happen on rehabilitation and restructuring of the Palestinian Authority, independent of what happens in Gaza. And that work can try and start sooner rather than later. And that there should be some real rewards for the Palestinians if they go through that that reconstruction and that rehabilitation, while also making it clear to the Israelis that we can't solve their problems for them unless they also recognize there needs to be an acceptable day after planning and that they need to, as much as that they've been traumatized by October 7th, you can't ask every other country to overcome its own domestic considerations if you're not willing to somewhat challenge your own domestic considerations. And that that needs to be a message as difficult as it is that's put in there. I'd say also that the Americans should approach this with a degree of both humility of a failed policy up to this point. We should recognize that, you know, it didn't work what we were doing up for the past three years and, and that the past 15 years in Gaza failed. It failed. And that failure, as much as it, it directly falls on the shoulders of Prime Minister Netanyahu, we've had successive American administrations that also lived with that failure and maybe didn't push hard enough. And when you look back at some of the Brookings reports with CNAS that were written about a new horizon for Gaza and some of the authors are in the administration, we need to dust those off and try and ask ourselves, why didn't we push harder? Why didn't we push more? When we saw there was an unsustainable policy, we just allowed it to get to a point of implosion. And why? And as we do our after planning, we need to try and ask ourselves, what can we learn and how do we do better as we move forward? And as difficult as it is to try and challenge DC orthodoxies and the comfort level, many people before this administration was sworn in, you know, said we need to deprioritize the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that it's not in the US national interest to deal with it, and that, you know, it should be deprioritized. I mean, an aspect of deprioritizing it, and to show that we can try and just go around it and do regional work, you know, at the expense of any progress on it, led to bad actors doing bad things. And that's what this is. Hamas always does extremely bad things when they feel that they'll be pushed out of relevancy. I think that the Israel-Saudi normalization they felt would push them out of relevancy and they did something extremely bad. 
and you know trying to find a way as difficult as it as it is not to stop working on Israel Palestine is annoying and as frustrating and as seemingly Sisyphean as it is, it's not an option to to stop working because when we stop working and when we stop trying to find a way to move in, other actors move in to do bad things. And it wasn't just that Hamas imploded the situation on October 7th, where they weren't just fighting occupation. Hamas wants to destroy Israel. It's extremely clear, and that's always been their objective. They could have stopped at the army bases. They didn't. They went into civilian targets and massacred Israeli civilians. And people need to be extremely clear about what Hamas is and what it's not. But at the same time, bad actors, I'm not making moral equivalencies or anything else, but bad actors in Israel were also using this opportunity where it seemed like no one was pushing towards two states to dictate a new reality in the West Bank, to collapse a Palestinian national movement and to skip over them by just trying to push regional peace accords while ignoring the Palestinians. And this should also be a a watershed moment to say that's that's no longer the game and that we can't move forward unless we in some way try and include the Palestinians. doesn't mean that they get a veto, but it means they have to have something that is also for them. And that also needs to be part of our programming as we move forward. Well, we'll have to leave our conversation there for now, although I think we'll have too many opportunities to revisit it. Until then, Joel Bronald, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal and produced by Kara Shellen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.